Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. You know, uh, recently I took a count, and I get over 700 emails a day. And I timed myself and found that I was spending far too much time looking at my emails. So I was really happy when uh, across my desk came a message about Dave Maggot. He's a CEO of a company that uh, helps uh, individuals and companies reduce their uh, reliance and usage of emails. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot, Don. Great to be here. Well, I hope you can teach our audience, and certainly me, how to uh, better handle this uh, overwhelming flood of emails. But, But before we do anything else, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself personally, because our audience always likes to know a little bit about the person that they're hearing from. Sure. I'm a techie. I've been a uh, programmer since I was a little kid. I was one of those fortunate few that even back in the 70s had a personal computer, and I took to it at a young age. Uh, I have degrees in computer science and, and actually in linguistics as well, and, and you'll see that will come into play with my background later. Um, I went to University of Maryland and MIT. Uh, I actually wrote a video game along with a few other people called Crash Bandicoot, which was a big game for the Sony PlayStation. Uh, then I went on to found a company called ITA Software, which probably few people have heard of, but it powers a lot of the airline websites. It does the travel search for airline sites and intermediaries like Kayak and Orbitz. And now I'm doing uh, Inky, which is a new email app the goal is to make it so that your email app actually understands what your mail is about and helps you deal with it better so you're not spending so much time on those 700 emails every day. Well, uh, that's good news. But um, uh, tell me, uh, g- give us a little background on how we now handle um, e- emails and what we're doing wrong. Well, everything that's happening now is manual. So if you think about the tool that you use to triage your inbox, it's pretty much the same as it's been for the last 20 years. Whether you use Outlook or Gmail or Inky or anything else, they're all very similar to the tools that we had decades ago. But if you look at the sender side, the people who are producing mail that comes into your inbox, 
they're a lot more sophisticated. And so now you have these companies like MailChimp that help companies send out enormous volumes of mail and engage with customers at some level, but also fill up their inboxes. And so it's not uncommon for the average person to get tens or hundreds of emails from social services or daily deal companies. And, and the only way to deal with that for most people is to, one at a time, go through their inbox and either delete or mark red or move things. And it's, and it's very tedious. And I was sort of on the leading edge of this when I was the COO at my previous company and I was getting 800 to 1,000 messages a day. And it really struck me that there's a need for improving the, the tools that the end users have uh, in dealing with their inboxes. Okay. Um, what are the next steps? For instance, uh, I'm a newsman, and I get uh, queries and everything. Um, uh, and uh, in particular, what really gripes me is when they say, Ray, Ari, uh, um, Colon, and then they say uh, uh, John Smith of appointment, and uh, um, uh, they, I've never had uh, any contact with them before. I mean, how does your system, or or how do people deal with this? So keep 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 going. I'd much rather have you talk than me. Sure. So one of the ways that we're improving things is we're making the mail program understand things about the message, that the, each message that comes in. So, for example, a message that's from a person, read John Smith, um, we know who sent that message, and we know how many times you've emailed that person. We know, for example, how many times you've emailed with that person's organization. So even if we don't know that individual, we might know, well, that's someone from a company that Don has emailed with before. And so these kinds of cues the sender, the subject, and in some cases the, the text in the body of the message can give us a sense of relevance of the message. So we can determine automatically, the program can determine automatically how relevant a message is to you. And in, in fact, in, in our program, Inky, you can sort by that. So you could put the most relevant stuff at the top and have the spam sink to the bottom. Now, most people are familiar with spam filtering, and that's determining relevance, but in a yes-no kind of way. And really, it's a very coarse check. So, you know, something that's spam is just really, uh, it's not even intended for you to read, really. With this kind of relevance notion, we're talking about the, the nuances between a timely message from your spouse asking you to get milk on the way home versus some other work correspondence versus as you said earlier, a, you know, a request for an interview or a discussion of some interview that you might do, an unsolicited request. So that's, the relevance is one way that the program can help you organize. The other critical way that, that I think is, is people are investing in is also this idea that we can figure out the intent of a message or in some sense what it's about. And there it's things like, well, this message came from Groupon, so it's a daily deal. Or this message includes information about a travel itinerary, so it's probably about an airline flight. In other words, the program, the mail program, begins to be able to understand the contents of messages and then help you organize them uh, on the basis of that. So it could move them to folders for you like we do. Um, it can do things like extract 
Uh, key information, for example, if you get a shipping confirmation, it can go and see that you got a tracking number in there, and it can go and look up the package on the shipper's website and then give you a status right in the preview pane of the package without the user having to click anything or do anything. And so this idea that we're understanding what the messages are about and their intent and extracting what we would call the semantic information, that's a big change that's happening in our, our field now, in the email and messaging field. That sounds exciting. But um, uh, how, how does your system work, uh, yours and others? Uh, uh, do I load something onto my computer and then uh, see, see it, or how does it work? Yeah, so one of the great things about email is it really is pretty standardized. It's been around for 40-plus years, and the big services generally adhere to the standards. And so we can interoperate with all the mail servers in the world. So to answer your specific question, Inky is an app that you download on your phone or your desktop computer, and you install it, and then you tell it your email address and your password for each account. And then it goes and figures out using these standards, how to connect to each of the mail servers, and it starts to then retrieve your email and study it. And when I say study it, I mean really it looks at the words in the email and it indexes them for search. Um, it also does things like look for package tracking numbers or it looks for addresses and figures out where those points are and produces maps from them and that sort of thing. And so you do have to install something, but you don't need to make a new mail account because fortunately all of these mail servers interoperate with each other, whether you're using Gmail or your work account or an Outlook.com account or, or whatever. Um, Inky can access that through the, through the standard mechanisms. This sounds uh, pretty exciting. Um, how long have you been around? We've been working on this for the last four years or so. Um, I've been doing work on text understanding really for my whole career. I studied it in school, and this idea that it's kind of surprising that a computer can look at the words in a message and understand anything, right? But it actually is, it is amazing how much this field has progressed. And an example of that is there are research papers on taking emails, for example, the, all the Enron emails that are public because of that court case, and understanding just from the words of the emails what the org chart is of the company, in that case Enron. So it's amazing, but you're just using math and looking at the occurrences of words in the messages, you can learn a lot about the contents of the messages and their meaning and their intent. And so. We've been working specifically on applying this kind of research to email for the last four years. Our app has only been out for a few weeks, actually, so it's brand new. Hmm. Well, I know the NSA has been for years using a very sophisticated system. Uh, to, that's why they have to pull all the telephone messages and the email messages and searching through them for patterns. They have a massive... Uh, uh, program in this. Uh, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, how does yours compare? Is it along the same lines as that? I would think so at some level. Obviously, I don't know the details of what the intelligence agencies are doing, but I imagine they're using similar kinds of mathematical or statistical techniques, and 
looking for patterns. My guess is that what they're doing is more looking for key phrases or key words where we're trying to actually extract semantic information, meaning contents of the message that might have been created by a program. You know, for example, let's say you bought a package, you bought a product on Amazon and you get a shipping confirmation. That's going to have information about the product in there. We would like to be able to extract that information so that it's stored in your mail program's database and the mail program knows about what you bought uh, and can help you um, with that. Whereas I think, you know, the intelligence agency, they're probably more looking for signals about key events or key individuals. Uh, but it's similar technology in the sense that it's all based on occurrences and co-occurrences of words. And for example, the idea that a word like V or A is incredibly common and doesn't tell you very much, but a more unusual word like radio, that might be much more uh, informative, and especially how that word appears in the context of the, a larger message or how it co-occurs with other words will tell you a lot about the meaning of a message. I'm sure they do a lot of that stuff. Well, uh, uh, let me ask you another question. Now, I go and, and uh, download Inky. I-N-K-Y, is it? That's right, I-N-K-Y, yep. Dot com? Yep, Inky.com, and you can get it in iTunes under Inky Mail, but yeah, Inky.com. So I go and I take this Inky, I take this app, uh, and I download it onto my computer. Am, am I right? That's right, yep. And then I uh, turn it loose. I enter my uh, email to that are coming in, and I turn it loose. Am I hearing you correctly? Essentially, yeah. You just tell it, you know, I have an account, which is don at gmail.com or something, and then you tell it the password, and then it starts to retrieve the mail from that account. And then and you, it, can add as, you, can, you can add as many accounts as you want, so then you see them all in a unified inbox. But then um, uh, the... The, I happen to. I'm, I'm not using Outlook. I'm using a different system, uh, a mail uh, thing. Uh, then it just drops it into it, or do I have to set up separate boxes? What do I have to do? You don't have to do anything. I mean, essentially, this would replace Outlook um, or the you know the Mac mail client that comes with the Mac. You would use this instead of those, and you can actually switch back and forth if you want. Um, but once you've installed Inky and you've told it about your accounts, then it just goes over the Internet and connects to your mail servers, which are run by your mail providers, which could be AOL or Yahoo or Gmail, or your mail provider could be your company. And they're running a server which actually stores your mail, and Inky would talk to that server over the Internet using these standard protocols and fetch the mail, essentially and then store it locally on your computer for analysis. But I would have to, if I was using Outlook, I'd have to give up my Outlook and go to yours. yours. You would use ours instead of Outlook. The thing, though, is that, it, that most of what you do in Outlook, you can also do in Inky. It's, it's quite similar, so you can sort and filter your messages. So one of the challenges that we have when we're trying to change the email experience is preserving enough of that familiarity so that people don't, so that people can still use it if they're used to something they've been using for a long time, like Outlook. But we also want to give them new capabilities. So I think if you try Inky, you'll see it's very familiar. 
and very reminiscent of something like Outlook. It just does more stuff and understands more about the messages than something like Outlook. What about the spam? Uh, how, do you, um, how does it recognize spam? So spam, I mean, from a technical standpoint, again, there are signals in the message that are things like, you know, even dollar signs appearing in the subject can be a valuable signal, or lots of capital letters, or, you know, misspelling of the word Viagra. I mean, those are really examples of signals that would identify things that are just absolutely spam. And what we do is we construct a model of all these different aspects of every message, and they're called features. And so we figure out, well, what features does this message have? And if it has enough of the spammy features, then we think it's spam. Um, and our model, actually, as I said before, is rather than just deciding whether something is spam or not, we look at these features and say, what do the feature settings, what do the features of this particular message say about how relevant it is, how timely it is, how important it is? And that includes things like, well, did the person who sent it to you, is that someone in your contact list? Or, for example, the last time you got mail from that sender, did you immediately delete it? And there are all kinds of behavioral signals like that that we can look at. So spam, essentially, for us, instead of being a yes-no, it's more of a ranking criterion where we would think that a spam message, if it had enough of these spammy features, we would think that that message is very low relevance, and we would put it at the bottom of the list. Well, let me ask you this question. But now, I have a couple of thousand names in my current uh, file. How do I, uh, you know, because uh, uh, I ought to, uh, how do I get them over into Inky? There's a couple ways. One is that you can export your contact list from the other program and import it into Inky, and we support that with some programs. The other way, which is really easy, is Inky will just automatically look in your sent mail folder, and it will know everybody you sent mail to and add them as a contact and start to look at how many times did you email that person. So it will start to develop a model of who are the important email addresses in your life, who do you mail a lot, who do you receive mail from, and the ones you receive a lot of mail from, do you reply to those? So remember that it's loading all your mail onto your computer and analyzing it. So it actually knows everyone you've mailed and everyone who's mailed you, and it knows something about what you've done with those messages in the past. Although. If you've deleted a message, it may not be able to see it anymore. In some cases, it can. In some cases, it can't. So essentially, it can reconstruct your contact list by looking at your email archive. Well, so uh, I'm a little confused, um, so bear with me. But um, uh, you, you are... Um, uh, uh, I have a system now. Hopefully it's one that you've seen. And um, uh, I, I load Inky. Then it somehow or other can talk to the other system. That's right. So that it could... But now uh, can I run them concurrently? You can, actually, because what happens when you run something like Outlook or Inky, or both at the same time, in fact, what happens is that the the program you're running on your computer, Outlook or Inky, synchronizes with the remote server. So it attempts to mirror what's on the remote server by asking the remote server, how many messages are there in this folder? 
How many folders are there and what are they called? And then what are the flags on each message? And it, it literally tries to, to get all the information from the remote server and synchronize so that you have a local copy essentially that matches what's on your remote server. And then your remote server, the one run by your company or the one run by Yahoo or AOL or whoever, that's kind of the master copy. And you can have all kinds of replicated subcopies via these clients like Outlook and Inky. So it doesn't retrieve the message and then that message is gone from the server. It's simply trying to mirror what's on the server and, and match everything up. And there's, this is what the mail protocols and the standards are designed to allow. They're designed to allow this kind of efficient synchronization between your client, which might be sitting on your desk at work or in your, in your bedroom at home, and the server, which may be in, you know, in Mountain View, California, or anywhere else. And it all happens over the Internet. Well, I'm lo uh, I'm looking right now at my what what, what uh, my system is, which is not a, a standard system. But anyway, I, I'll worry because I'm definitely going to try it. Uh, I wanted to try it be uh, before we uh, got on the show, but did not get a chance. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I always like uh, uh, trying a pr product or reading a book before I have the guest on. But you're certainly. Um, uh, yours is certainly interesting, and and uh, I always like it when uh, we bring on board uh, new applications like this because uh, small business owners are not uh, pioneers, but they certainly like to know what's going on. Um, if if people wanted to reach you, if they want to reach me, they can do so by emailing me at dmb at inky dot com. That's D as in David, M as in Michael, B as in boy, at Inky.com. And if they want to see more about the product, it's Inky.com? That's right. We have a whole page on there about the features and links to all the downloads and links to the uh, iTunes store. And, and we are actually working on a, a version of Inky targeted at small business people um, as a replacement to things like Outlook and Gmail that will start to give them additional tools to deal with in particular the, the kind of inbound mail that comes to addresses like sales at uh, example.com or info at example.com, you know, these role account addresses where different people in the company may be manning those inboxes and sharing the inboxes. Uh, and so we're looking at ways to do this same kind of understanding technology on that kind of mail and then perhaps suggest particular replies to certain kinds of messages that are common uh, and, and make it easier easier to categorize and move these very common kinds of inbound messages to role accounts um, into into folders and, and what we call smart views. I, I really appreciate that you came on today. Um, l let me ask you a, a different question. You spent four years uh, developing it. Um, uh, what are some of the obstacles that you have en en encountered uh, that you'd like to share with the with our audience? Well, email is a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, an email. You know, email is really interesting because I kind of liken it to building a car. Most people don't think of cars as complicated. They don't think about cars having 10 million parts. 
but if one part in the car doesn't work, they get very upset, obviously. They just think about, I want my car to go from point A to point B and not give me problems. And to some extent, they think about email the same way, but there's an enormous amount of hidden complexity behind something like email. So a huge challenge for us was just getting to parity with the other systems. In other words, creating that base platform that would do all the, for lack of a better word, all the mail stuff. And it's things like all the different foreign languages and character sets. It's things like displaying images properly, displaying the HTML mail properly. It's things like parsing the mail to make sure there's nothing dangerous in it. So as you probably know, mail comes in a form that has arbitrary HTML like web pages and that can have what are things called cross-site scripting attacks and things that try to steal your personal information. So the mail client has to strip that stuff out and it's really important to do it right. So there are all these sub-problems that we have to understand everything about the area and then implement just before we're at parity with everybody else. And then we can start thinking about adding all the additional features. So that was a big, a big challenge for us. The other challenge is more psychological, and it's that my perception is that people are so frustrated with email, the average person, that it's hard for them to imagine anything making it better. And so when I tell people to try Inky, sometimes it seems like they just don't want to try anything anymore. They've just given up on email. And so you know, that's sort of a challenge for us on a marketing, from a marketing standpoint, trying to get people to give it a shot and believe that it could be, there could be a better way. And I'm not sure that I have the answer yet, but I identify that as a significant challenge in this particular space of development, email. Um, well, two questions. Can, can you specify, like, anything that comes through and anything but English uh, is discarded? You can't explicitly tell it that, but it does look at things like that. For example, if you've never received mail in Korean before and read it, then that's a pretty strong feature, that's a strong signal that that's not a mail that's very relevant to you. So certainly things like the, the character set used, which, which means what kind of letters appear in it, what, what language, that sort of thing, those are part of this ensemble of features that I mentioned that comprise the signal to the, to the machine learning system or the computer program that tells, tells it how relevant a message might be. And, and that's one of the reasons why it can be pretty accurate, even though you might think intuitively, you know, what does the computer understand about your mail? You wouldn't think anything, right? But actually looking at features like what language is it in and how does that compare to other messages you've replied to is really a strong signal in some cases. Well, the other question is, how much does it cost? It's actually free right now, so you can download Inky for free, and uh, we will have small business versions that we charge a monthly, monthly subscription for. Um, as I said, we'll have tailored versions for small businesses, uh, and we'll always have some version that's free uh, for people to try for consumers. So the answer, really, if you want to just try it, is it's free. Ooh. Well, I definitely am going to try it, and I'm really glad you came on the program to the, tonight. 
I look look forward to uh, talking to you um, sometime down the road so that we can find out how Inky went. Sounds great. I'd love to share uh, the learnings from that and the experience. I'm sure we'll have some stories. Uh, come again, and thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure, Don. We're going to meet with uh, David Picker, internationally known producer, president of movie studios, and author of one of the most interesting autobiographies uh, I've read in recent years. David, we're really happy to have you on the program today. Happy to be with you. (laughs) I have to tell you, I I found your uh, autobiography fascinating. And um, uh, I I deliberately didn't want, want to give too much of an introduction to our audience. I'd much rather um, have have you say a little what a fascinating background you have. But um, uh, can you just briefly tell us some of the, the your accomplishments? I mean, there's so many. I didn't even know where to begin. I, I know for myself, your your work uh, in bringing the, uh, the uh, James Bond uh, series uh, to Amer- uh, to the world certainly has to count as one of them, but I leave it up to you. Well, number one, uh, thank you. Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough to be part of a company that permitted me enormous leeway in in developing things that I believed in, and uh, that's what made United Artists under Arthur Krim and Bob Benjamin such a remarkable place to work. Uh, And when I was uh, asked by them to replace their partner who had chosen to leave, Max Youngstein, I was like 30 years old. And it was uh, heady stuff. But, um, you know, I, I, there, were, there were talents I had met and stories I had read that I believed in, and uh, some of them became pretty successful, specifically uh, James Bond and, and this group in, uh, in Liverpool that uh, had been recommended to me uh, because we were looking to sign musical groups that could deliver soundtrack albums to the uh, music and record companies that I was also responsible for and one of the groups we signed turned out to be the Beatles and Brian Epstein their manager was uh, not really familiar with the movie business and asked me to recommend to them the filmmaker that that I thought would best uh, convey their talents onto the screen and I recommended Richard Lester and uh, as recently as a few days ago, he and I spoke uh, because he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Los Angeles uh, film critics, and I went out to uh, accept it on his behalf at his request because he wasn't feeling up to making the trip. So, I mean, you know, I look back, and, and the thing that obviously thrills me the most are the, are the, is the amazingly diversified group of talents with whom I was uh, able to work. Well, um, let's talk about that. Uh, you work with many stuff, many stars. You've done, you did Tom Jones. Uh, you, you've done so much. Um, which ta- which of those talents stands out now, uh, years later, as uh, among the most brilliant? Well, I mean, you know, as I as I. As I told in the book, most maybes and nevers. It's you know each one is a story unto its own, and you could almost write a book about any of them. Uh, I, I just happened to get extremely fortunate. Uh, the very first project that I went to my bosses with 
uh, believing that we should do uh, was this very offbeat period script uh, to be directed by a, a British uh, filmmaker who, whose films I'd seen and believed uh, had enormous talent named Tony Richardson. And I got them to uh, let me greenlight a little movie called Tom Jones. It was the first picture I got greenlit, and it wound up uh, winning the Oscar for Best Picture of the Year. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 it went from there. I mean, um, in the case of the Beatles, it was a situation where I was looking to bring soundtrack albums to the record and music operations that I was also responsible for. So I was asking our people to find groups that, that might be interested in film uh, where we could also have uh, co-publishing and soundtrack album rights. And we came up with uh, quite a few of them. Uh, one, for example... Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers didn't turn out to be a big success, but another one called The Beatles did, and 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 Brian Epstein relied on my suggestion uh, as to who they should make a film with, and it was Richard Lester, and uh, it, it turned out to be uh, to be great for all of us. So it was an incredibly exciting time. Uh, I was given enormous uh, leeway in the projects that we did, and some were successful and of course some were not successful but the amazing thing about the company was that everything was perceived as a group decision no matter who you know was the lead and there was never a feeling of you did this and I did that or you succeeded in this or we failed in that it was just a, a unique structure of for a movie company and it was an amazing time to be able to work in that company because I could bring such a, a diversified uh, group of talents to make films for us. Well, you know, you uh, if you look at your career, uh, look at your book, you have an amazing uh, talent for identifying what people want. Uh, how did you come across that? What goes into that decision? That's what impressed uh, me most about uh, Well, you, you see, I, I, you got it backwards. I didn't look at something as if it, uh, w what do I think people want? I looked at it as who excites me? Whose talent did I think had the, the ability to deliver entertaining uh, material? And I, I trusted my judgment because if you try to guess what other people are going to want, they don't know. I mean, you don't, you, you, I couldn't go to somebody and say, what would you like to see? Because they have no idea what they want to see. Something that's good, something that entertains me, something I like. Great, that's not going to help. So what I responded to were the talents that I thought could deliver interesting projects. And the thing about United Artists was there was this enormous cross-section of talents that we were able to attract from the obvious and commercial stuff, uh, you know, such as, as James Bond, uh, to the very special offbeat stuff such as uh, films by Richard Lester, uh, uh, to the fact that the company was structured in a way where it was important to attract European filmmakers because the philosophy that had been established by one of the partners who happened to be my Uncle Arnold was that if we had strong European filmmakers, we would get better playing time for our non-European movies in the, in, the, uh, in the movies in Europe. So I was given the leeway to go out and attract a Bernardo Bertolucci, a Federico Fellini, a Vittorio De Sica, uh, you know, these, these uh, Louis Malle, uh, Claude Lelouch, uh, and Ingmar Bergman. I mean, it, it, it was an amazing atmosphere in which to work. 
because we had the freedom to go anywhere and do whatever uh, we believed in and, and whoever I could convince my bosses to, to let uh, make films for us. And it was a, a unique time in the film business. It, uh, it hadn't happened before, and it certainly hasn't happened since. Well, um, going forward, you, you've done many, many different things. Uh, all, all uh, what I would think is uh, bringing something to the uh, to the public. Um, uh, you you say it wasn't uh, you don't it hasn't happened since. Why do you think that's occurred? Well, the business has changed dramatically now. It really has. I mean, there are companies, I mean, what James Seamus did with Focus, for example, uh, for many years, it was very exciting because he, he had the taste and the ability to, to attract uh, the kind of filmmakers that, that could make films at reasonable prices uh, but could also issue their own specific talents. And, you know, and if you have enough hits that offset the flops you're obviously going to have, it, it works. Um, I responded to filmmakers who I thought made interesting films. And at the same time, we were in business with Hollywood A-listers through the Mirish Company, uh, you know, people like Billy Wilder and Willie Wyler, Stanley Kramer. And uh, it, it, it was a very, very diversified portfolio that, uh, that conceptually we were given the opportunity to attract. And, you know, everything was not a success. I mean, I was thrilled when the group of us decided that we wanted to back George Stevens, one of the great filmmakers of all time. The only problem was the picture we chose to back him on, The Greatest Story Ever Told, was a movie nobody wanted to see. <laughs> so we had, you know, we had the biggest loss in our history, fortunately offset at the same time because we also had James Bond and the Beatles. So it's, you know, it's a batting average business. Nobody's always right, and nobody's always wrong. And, you know, you look back and you say, well, the best that we did, the most interesting things we did were pretty, pretty darn terrific. And along with them, we had the things that, you know, obviously were incredibly disappointing. But, you know, you make a little tiny movie called Lilies of the Field, and you win an Oscar with it. Uh, you make a picture, uh, an offbeat British contemporary I mean, sorry, British uh, classical uh, novel, probably the first book ever considered a novel, uh, Phil Ding's Tom Jones, and you wind up winning the Best, move, best uh, Picture Oscar. Uh, it was an amazingly exciting, uh, irreverent time in the business, uh, quite different, I think, from today, where, you know, you, everybody's looking for sure things, uh, and it, it, it's, it's pretty different. Well, uh, I saw... Uh perfectly uh, a horrible movie uh, Saturday night on HBO uh, which starred Tom Cruise uh, which seemed to be more technical um, achievement than uh, storyline or uh, what I noticed about most of your movies here are that they always had strong storylines and it seems to me that they go for special effects today rather than good stories well, you know, maybe. I, I mean, but on the other hand, you see a movie like Gravity, which is nothing but special effects, and it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, you see a movie like Nebraska, which is exactly the opposite, has an amazing performance by the great Bruce Dern, and it's absolutely terrific. So, it, you know, it, the one thing it's impossible to generalize is about the movie business. 
because it's never it's you, it it's never the same and if you re, if you respond to talent and you respond to ideas and you have more hits than flops you know you're going to do okay but my favorite line and a lot of people's too about the movie business was written by William Goldman, you know, one of the great screenwriters of all time, who he said uh, very simply is, nobody knows anything. <laughs> and the fact is, you know, I, what did I know? I knew what I liked. I knew the filmmakers I wanted to be in business with. And if I had more hits than flops, it was great. You know, your passion, the name of your book, by the way, so our audience could know about it. Well, the name of my book is Must maybes and nevers and it was actually uh given to me by billy wilder the great filmmaker some like it hot in the apartment etc uh who was of uh of uh, european descent and we we're having lunch one day and he spoke with this charming accent which i won't try and imitate on the <laughs> on the interview and but he was so smart about movies and he was very witty and he liked me and i adored him and we were having lunch one day, we were talking about movies, and he said to me, David, I'm going to tell you something now you are always going to remember. I said, what is that, Billy? He says, there are only three kinds of movies, musts, maybes, and nevers. And, of course, I never forgot it. And when it came time to come up with a title for my book, it came down to two titles. One was, from the very first time I ever saw a movie, my dad was worked for Lowe's Theaters, and so... You know, he ran theaters. I went into movie theaters free my whole life. Uh, but I was a kid, and I'd never seen a movie, and he invited me and my class to come to the Lowe's screening room for my birthday screening where he was going to have ice cream and cake and screen a new movie, and the title of the movie was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And when the wicked stepsister or witch or whatever it is came out of that, came onto that screen, I got out of the screening room and I ran out. I was so scared. So at one time I was thinking of calling my book I Ran Screaming from the Projection Room uh, in honor of that, that cowardice I showed. But I, I eventually settled on Must Maybes and Nevers because I thought it was more encompassing. And the response to it uh, obviously has been, has been very good. Well, you've also, you've also worked in, mu- in the music industry, uh, a, lot, a lot of other things. What, what, what has given you the most satisfaction over your career? Well, I was asked to take over our, the, the UA uh, music uh, and record operation uh, at one point in time in my career, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. But what has given me the most satisfaction? Um, my belief in filmmakers and, and knowing that had I not believed in what they decided to do, that movies like uh, Tom Jones or uh, the four movies I did with Ingmar Bergman, the Persona and Passion of Honor and... Uh, those movies might not have happened and you know to to look back and and see the impact that a lot of the movies that we did had on the history of the business and the entertaining people all over the world there's enormous satisfaction from that and it isn't about anybody else knowing about it I just thought writing the stories about it would be fun for people to read but had I not written the stories I still would have the enormous satisfaction of having been part of uh, films that have entertained and will forever be remembered as as, uh, as you know highlights in the history of movies. Well, certainly, uh, Elmer Gantry had such a 
powerful impact. Um, uh, and and I, you were involved in that. Uh, you would, would, would you want to say anything about that movie? Well, I, I'd be happy to say something about Richard Brooks, who made the movie, because Richard Brooks was one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. And, uh, you know, he, he was just an amazing filmmaker. And that performance by, by Burt Lancaster was, was, really, was really very special. Uh, it's, you know, being a filmmaker is not a normal way of making a living. And you have to be slightly off a wall or slightly crazy or slightly or more than slightly unusual to want to and be able to have be good enough to have a career doing that. Uh, Richard Brooks was one of my favorite people uh, uh, that I ever worked with. He was a, a very unusual man. He had idiosyncrasies that were kind of delicious. He didn't trust anybody. When we previewed a movie with Richard Brooks, the Film cans were taken up to the projection room by Mr. Brooks himself. He wasn't going to let anybody touch that film until it got to the projection room. He had an employee of his stay in the projection room during the screening so that those cans were not going to be touched by anybody, and then they went back in his car and back to the, back to his office. Um, it's you know it's the the divergence of personalities from Richard Brooks to Billy Wilder to Richard Lester to the Beatles to to Jay, to Sean Connery to I mean what a what a what an amazing way to be able to live a life, enjoy it, have success from it, and know that you've made an impact on people's lives. And I get that all the time. Oh my God, that movie changed the way I felt about something or other and you know the movies are a very powerful uh, tool and weapon and have an impact on people's lives and it's you know as as my grandfather reportedly said i didn't know him although i was named after him he died before i was born but he said everybody has two businesses their own and the movies and it's absolutely true everybody's lives are affected by movies and what a what a privilege to be able to work in that kind of a world well, you you also did Last Tango in Paris. I certainly did. <laughs> what a what a groundbreaking movie that is. Uh, well, again, you know, I was in a position where at UA I was able to reach out to filmmakers, and I'd seen Bertolucci stuff, and I said, this is a man who should be making movies for us at United Artists. So I went to him, and uh, we wound up with Last Tango in Paris. Did you expect it to be as controversial as it was? Well, once I saw it, I knew it would be. Uh, <laughs> you know, and when the New York Film Festival people said they would like to show it, I said, I, okay, you can show it on one condition, and one condition only, and that is that there will be no press previews, there will be no special invitations, whoever shows up for the screening shows up for the screening, and Richard Rout agreed to that, we delivered the print just to make sure a few hours early that everything with the projection was okay. And when that film came on the screen for the festival, that was the first time an audience had ever seen that movie. And none of us knew that Pauline Kael, the critic of The New Yorker, was in that audience. And none of us knew she was going to write her review a couple of weeks later. And when she did, that review became the campaign for the movie. That's all we had to do was reprint her review make it, put it into a theater with 400 to 500 seats, no other theater, 
let people wait online for weeks trying to see the movie before we went more broadly with it, and we had this gigantic success. But it was, you know, it was the choice of how we chose to market it that contributed. I mean, the picture would have been success anyway, but the way we marketed it, something I learned when I was a, a, a young assistant at the company right after I joined it from Mike Todd, who had produced Around the World in 80 Days for us, and he used to say, kid, make it hard for them to see. And when we opened Around the World in 80 Days as a reserve ticket performance, Anybody who came up to a buy a ticket couldn't get a ticket for the first two or three weeks, even though we hadn't sold them out. We wanted people to think they couldn't get a seat for it. And with Last Tango, we wanted people to not be able to get into that theater easily. And the more difficult it was to get in to see, the more people wanted to see it. And, uh, you know, we, had a, we, had a, we turned it into, uh, marketed a picture that was going to be a success, no matter how we marketed it. But I think we marketed it in a way that made it an even bigger success. Uh, you won't get an argument from me. I noticed. That <laughs> it, uh, I noticed recently that the, the actress who played, played in it unfortunately passed away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it that happens, you know. It's happened uh, every every week. Uh, people that I I care about or was involved in, you know, we lose them. I'm hey, I'm 82. One of these days, you'll say it about me. It's. Um, it's the way it works. Um, let, let me. Uh, well, you did Midnight Cowboy as well. Yes, I did. I, I, um, and uh, I actually uh, uh, saw one of the scenes being filmed in New York. Um, I have to be in, in, uh, in there. Uh, that was another ground, certainly another groundbreaking uh, movie. It sure was, and it happened for a very simple reason. I had seen the movies that John Schlesinger had made, and I wanted John Schlesinger to make a movie for us at United Artists. So I was in England, I went to see John, and I said, listen, you know who I am, you know what we do, if there's any movie you want to make, would you please give us a chance to do it with you? And I was leaving the next day to come back to America. And he said, well, there is one movie I do want to do. He says, I don't think you're going to want to do it. It's this tiny little book. But, you know, I'll give you a copy and read it on the airplane and let me know. And he gives me this, I don't, I don't know how many pages. It was a very, very small little book. And he gives me this book called Midnight Cowboy. And I read it on the plane, and I get back to New York, and I get back to him, and I said, we're going to make this movie with you. And he couldn't believe it. I said, John, we're going to make this movie with you. And we made the movie with him. That is real, really. Uh, you 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 worked with uh, some of the great Italian uh, uh, film uh, film directors, uh, right? Uh, do you have any stories you'd like to share with them? I'm sure you have many stories, but uh, uh, anything you would like to share? Uh, I'm always fascinated by the Italian, the Sica, Fellini, etc. Well, it, I don't know if I have any, you know, stories that would dramatize it, but there's no question I reached out to them. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to make movies with De Sica, with Fellini, with Bertolucci, with Elio Petri? I mean, these are, you know, the great, some of the great filmmakers of our time. And so because of the, the freedom I was given by my bosses, I was able to reach out to them, and we were able to make uh, some really uh, terrific movies. I mean... Just the idea of meeting Fellini, 
I will give you, you know, I went to I went to the studio where he had his office, and I'm in the room with Federico Fellini, and I'm I'm saying, Mr. Fellini, what do you want to do? We'll we'll do whatever you want to do. And we want you to make a movie for us. And he came back to us with Satyricon, and uh, and we made the movie. Uh, and I mean, it, it, to me, obviously, economically protecting the company from over budgets and stuff like that, I had the opportunity and I was given the ability to make reach out and make deals with Fellini and with Petri and with uh, De Seeker and with Bergman and uh, it, it was a, it was an amazing time and um, and some of the movies turned out to be pretty groundbreaking. Um, what about Saturday Night Live? Certain, um, Saturday Night Fever. Well, Saturday night, Saturday night Fever. I was president of Paramount, and Barry Diller asked me to join him, and it, it was an interesting time because it, he was an odd. I was an odd choice for him because I have re- enormous respect for Barry, but we come from totally different directions in terms of film, and I obviously were, was attracted to filmmakers. Uh, Barry was more attracted to content, so in the time I was there. I made deals with a whole bunch of different filmmakers, and uh, the results of those of those deals showed up after I left. But it was, uh, you know, it was it was I was able to bring some of those terrific filmmakers to Paramount and uh, and develop some projects that turned out to be pretty successful. And Michael Eisner, uh, you know, was the, was then in charge, um, and I have a letter from Barry acknowledging uh, my contribution. Which obviously the management after me, other than Barry, never, never acknowledged. Um, but uh, but Barry was very gracious in a letter that's in my book, which uh, you know I was I, I I really appreciated his sending. If uh, if you had anything to advise someone, a young person now, uh, uh, embarking on a career, what would you advise them to do? Well, what I do, because I, I talk to film groups, film schools a lot, what I, what I advise them to do is to follow their dream and find other people, other students, their friends, uh, who think like they do and, and just stick with it until they make it happen or can't make it happen. But it's not going to come easy. You've got to find something you believe in, and then you've got to find a way to get somebody to finance it for you and uh, there's no e- there's no there's no ground rules. Every every project is totally different from every other project in terms of its history and how it happened. And those who stick with it and those who tough it out are those among that group are the ones who are going to make it. Uh, but you really got to believe in it. You got to find other people of your time period who believe like you do, uh, and and find a way to survive long enough to get something made and from that you know history sometimes follows in a positive sense and sometimes doesn't follow in a positive sense but nothing you're not going to get anything without enormous effort enormous belief in what you believe in and stick-to-itiveness otherwise nobody's going to give it to you you've got to find a way to get it for yourself and those that do are the ones who succeed well, what are you doing nowadays? 
Well, I've got the New York Times crossword puzzle in front of me. Uh, <laughs> what I'm doing is I, I lecture occasionally, which I enjoy very much. I, I enjoy talking to young filmmakers. Uh, I'm playing around with another book, uh, the content of which I'm not prepared to discuss at this point in time. And I'm, I've got a fabulous wife who supports me, and I support her, and we travel. And I give awards, and I accept awards for friends of mine who aren't around to accept them anymore. And I'm, I'm a very, very, very lucky guy. Well, um, it sounds that way. It sounds, and you certainly had a terrific uh, career. And we thank you for joining us today. It's uh, my fr- I'm, I'm delighted to do it. I love talking about movies, and I'll support anybody who loves talking about movies as best I can. Oh, uh, I, I'm one of them. But again, the name, the name of your book is Musts, Maybes, and Nevers, A Book About the Movies. Well, that's something our, uh, our audience will, will really go for. Thank you, Well, I, I, I appreciate it very much. I must say, from the response I've had to the book, it seems to me that people are enjoying it, and I thank you for the time to talk about it and wish you well. Well, I thank you, and have okay, a nice sir. Bye-bye. Take care. That was David Picker, uh, one of the great producers and the studio executives of our time. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.